0: Welcome to the St. Moses Church Podcast. Thanks for joining us. St. Moses is a new church sharing the hope of Christ in the heart of Baltimore. If you unfold a quartered map of the city of Baltimore, you'll find us right where the creases intersect. If you have any questions or any way we can help you, please don't hesitate to reach out at info at org. Now, let's continue with the podcast.
1: Reading from Hebrews 2, 14 to 18. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way... Could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying? We also know that the son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters so he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested.
0: Man, Thank you so much. And thank you for singing out this morning. I felt like you're... Your voices, I could feel them under the the shoulders of my heart, so thank you for that. Today's uh, talk has been gestating in me for uh, a few weeks, I think as we were working our way through our previous series, The Gospel in Five Episodes, but that was before um, so so much so that I I talked to Pastor Kim a couple weeks ago and I said, Kim, is it okay if we uh, cut short our sermon series on gratitude? I want to talk about death and life, about mortality and immortality. That was, um, of course, whew, that was before uh, Pastor Ken and Allie's two-month-old, Kaya, a niece to three of us, uh, before she was put in the NICU and on a ventilator this week. And I mentioned that just... Um, because I thought, for those of you who knew that situation, it might feel like this morning is a response to that. And it's not, it's not really. Um, but it did mean that many times this week, I wrestled with whether this was the appropriate thing to preach on today. We had backup plans. But as I wrestled with it, I thought, Christians of all people... And that the the, the the heart of this talk is that Christians of all people can look with clear eyes, if not with dry ones, at our mortality. And so this morning, uh, it, I hope it doesn't feel like uh, dry theory out there. Uh, I think, like all of our Sunday morning talks at St. Mo's, they're meant to be credos. They're meant to be. I believe emerging from the truth of God's word and and offered, whispered, if they have to be, um, from vulnerability. Let me pray, and then then I'll get this together. Father, thanks for your grace. Thanks for these saints and seekers uh, gathered today to worship you and to meet with one another and uh, to... Warm our hearts around the fire of your grace. We pray that you would meet us by your spirit. Uh, Plant in our hearts by your word the the seeds of faith and hope this morning and water them by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. The title this morning is Remember You Will Die, Remember You Will Rise Again. Growing up, there was a retired judge, a follower of Jesus, who lived on our street. He looked like Santa Claus in season and out, and uh, he, his wife made the most amazing chocolate chip cookies. She invited us to come stop by for chocolate chip cookies anytime we were exploring the woods behind their log house. He was the one who taught me to play chess. And one day when I was at their house playing chess, he said to me, Ian, follow me. I want to show you something. And I know, I know, I know what that sounds like, but this was the the late 1900s. So, um, you know, nothing terrible happened. He led me over to a long, low wooden box. It looked a lot like the box that we kept spare blankets in at home. And he said, Ian, you know what that is? And I was like, a box. And he kicked off his boots. And he dramatically lay down on top of it. And then, at least the way I remember it, he folded his arms like this across his chest. It was a perfect fit. He sat up, grinning. Ian, this is my casket. I didn't yet know the word macabre. So I just said, but you're not dead yet. (laughs) And he said, well, this is a good reminder that I will die someday. And besides that, he said with a twinkle in his Santa Claus eyes, I might as well get some use out of it before I really need it. As weird as that judge seemed then, and I know he seems weirder still today, he was standing in a well-established Christian tradition of deliberately and regularly reminding ourselves that we will die. The Latin phrase is memento mori. Remember that you will die. You are mortal. My pastor friend Brian lives and uh, leads a church in Washington, the state of Washington, where you're not a real pastor unless you have sleeves. So this is uh, one of his tattoos for you to see this morning. You'll see another one later. Memento Mori. Remember that you will die. Here's another story. Last week, one of Jill's and my former professors, a, a man named Gordon Fee, who was one of the primary translators of the the most popular uh, version of the Bible today. He he died. And because he was well-known for translating the Bible, a lot of articles were written about about his death, and one of them recorded the memory of a pastor who had taken a class on New Testament with Gordon Fee. This is what he remembered. Gordon boldly jumped up on the desk. This is the first day of class and announced, this is not a class on the New Testament. This is a class on immortality. Someday, you will hear, Fee is dead, as we did this last week. Do not believe it. He is singing with his Lord and his King. Both of these feel weird. But I think... They're each, in their own way, a healthier response to the death and dying that is all around us and that is coming at some point for each of us than our typical responses. Our typical responses are to sanitize it entirely in hospitals and morgues, to distance ourselves from its gravity with funerals, and funerals often that say lots about the favorite sports team of the deceased or the favorite hobby of the deceased, but next to nothing about its meaning or about what comes next. Regardless of whether you are a Christian or uh, an atheist this morning or someone in between, it seems to me that if we want to be people who grapple with reality as it is, and we do, I think, then we need to be people who face the reality of death with eyes wide open, head on. When we look at the Bible's teaching on mortality, on life and death and immortality, I think we find the help we need this morning. So here's what I want to do. Those of you who were here several weeks ago might remember we looked in the first couple chapters of the Bible at two trees, one of them called the tree of life. We only saw it briefly. This morning we are going to pull on that thread and we're going to follow that theme through the Bible, see where it takes us in its scope. Some of you probably even last week heard Dr. Eklund uh, allude to that tree of life in the final chapters of the Bible. So that's going to help us to understand the Bible's teaching on mortality and immortality, I think. But what do we do with that? We don't want this just to be theory. So to help us to shift practically, shift our approach to death and to living well, to die well, we're going to draw on an ancient Christian tradition that is all but forgotten. It's an entire body of teaching known as the Ars Moriendi, the art of dying. Ready to get down to work? Here's a, here's a first point. Our quest for godlike immortality apart from God. Some of you will remember in Genesis chapter 2, we were introduced in the Garden of Eden to these two trees. Here's Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. There is a tree of life, and there is a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It says this, "...the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food, and in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil." I said at the time, I I think this is a poetic description of creation, and I think we're meant to understand this tree of life as giving us access to immortality. Some of you uh, who have grown up in church might have been told that we are inherently immortal, or that our spirits are inherently immortal, but the Bible doesn't seem to teach that. Instead, the Bible seems to say that we are thoroughly contingent. We are utterly dependent on a creator, on God. He is the one who creates us, and he's the one who has to keep us created, sustain us along the way. He's the one who forms us from the dust of the earth and breathes his breath into our bodies. You might remember, um, before those humans are able to get the fruit from the tree of life, something else happens, and that is that they rebel. He had made God had made them to be his bearers of his image, to be partners with him and overseeing all of creation, this highly dignified role, but instead they wanted God-likeness on their own apart from God. So they grabbed at that fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you might remember one of the consequences was that God sent them out of the garden and he barred access to it. Here's what Genesis 3:24 says. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim, that's powerful angels, to the east of the garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. God, it's like God knows that they are going to be these humans are motivated to get back there to the one thing that he doesn't want them to have so long as their relationship with him is ruptured. I think of all of our toddlers, especially uh, number 4 when he was seven months old, just feels like he needs to go up those stairs. Why? Why? You're not going to change your own diaper up there. You're not going to put yourself down for a nap. You're not going to go to brush your teeth. He just wants to go because there's a baby gate there. And he knows that he wants to get up those stairs, especially so that he can fall back down them. But we resonate with this human longing for immortality, don't we? I've said before in this room that most cultures of the world have had major industries built around this desire, this desire to to elongate our lives, to project ourselves in some form into a future generation, whether it's our consciousness or our memory or our influence. So uh, our cosmetics industry takes as a foregone conclusion that we don't want to age, I remember when I was, I was single, uh, going to the barber, and uh, the lady who was cutting my hair said to me, are you married? And I said, no, I'm not. Thanks for, thanks for asking. And she said, you have two options. <laughs> One, you get married very soon. Two, you stop going bald. We all... None of us want to age. Cryonics wants us to imagine that we can uh, freeze our bodies in, a, in an effort to um, resurrect somehow our consciousness in the future by the powers of technology. Uh, major money is made around this human longing that is in almost all of us. It's not reserved for Christians. It's not even reserved for broadly religious people. Here's the poet and Yale professor Christian Wyman wrestling with this longing for immortality as he thinks about his grandmother's fear of death. He says this, How desperately we, the living, want to believe in this possibility, that death could be filled with promise, that the pain of leaving and separation could be, if not a foretaste of joy, then at least not meaningless. Even atheists want to die well. To die well, even for the atheist, is to believe that there is some way of dying into life rather than simply away from it. Some form of survival that, make, that love makes possible. And we see this all the time in our everyday life. We see this, I think, uh, not least in the ways that we comfort one another after death. Christian, non-Christian materialist, atheist, I don't care who you are, I will bet my last dime that when someone dies, you'll hear things like, she lives on in our hearts. I can feel her there smiling when I listen to that music we both loved. These are natural things that we say because we are not naturally immortal. We long for it, we strain for it. We find ourselves Invoking immortality, even if we don't believe in it, even if we would never say that we have faith. That's, I think, worth noting. Unfortunately, this pattern from Genesis 3 of grabbing for godlike status apart from a relationship with God continues. In fact, it's one of the main trajectories in Genesis 1 through 12. I'm going to take you to a couple of weird texts briefly. You might remember Genesis 6, there's this very strange sequence of verses right at the beginning, right before the flood. It says that um, some immortal creatures, the Hebrew is sons of gods or sons of God, some immortal creatures um, intermarry with humans and create offspring that have some demigod-like qualities. They're giants, they're uh, amazing warriors. Now, if you've read uh, the epic classics um odyssey the iliad uh, aeneid you'll know that this is this is pretty normal or if you've read the the flood narratives of the ancient near east where uh, think of think of Brad Pitt in Troy right remember how just how uh, mesmerized Troy, which is based on the Iliad, is with, with the immortality of the gods. The gods aren't any better in their characters than the humans are. The only difference is they're more powerful and they live forever. And Brad Pitt's character, Achilles, is demigod. His mom is immortal. His mom's a god. His dad's human. And he's got some of the godlike qualities in his running and his fighting, but he can still be killed by an arrow in his heel. Uh, this was common to ancient literature, but immediately after this incident in Genesis 6 comes the flood. This incident precipitates God's judgment on humans because I think precisely this is another attempt at humanity grasping for godlike immortality outside of a relationship with the one true God. Fast forward a couple chapters, Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, another bizarre story, and we see the same thing happening. Here's Genesis 11, verse 4. This is what the people living in a great plain say. Come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous. What what, what do these ancient people mean by building a tower? Like They're all like 52 inches tall, maybe, and their buildings are maybe two, three, four stories most, what does this mean by let's build a great city for us, a tower that reaches to the sky? I think in this uh, this ancient literature, this is a way of talking about humans trying to climb into the heavenly realm, trying to seize immortality as their right, as the fruit of their engineering, rather than as a gift from the creator of the cosmos. Okay. I know we're moving quickly. Let me summarize. This is what I'm saying so far. If we want to be realists and to live in the real world, not a Peter Pan world of make-believe, then we must take death seriously. If we want to be faithful, deal faithfully with the human heart, then in most every one of us, there is this strain, this longing for immortality, and we must also acknowledge that and take that seriously. Most often, Humans, it seems, try to seize, try to achieve that immortality apart from a relationship with the one true God. Here's my second theme. The Christian art of dying. Christians throughout the centuries, last 2,000 years, have wrestled with that tension. We all die. We all want to live forever. My first introduction to this after that judge lying down on his own coffin was reading about the Christians of the 16th and 17th century in England who would, where's my prop, where's my prop, who would creepily keep real skulls on their nightstands next to their Bible and their prayer journal. Earlier this week I texted, it was Halloween week, so earlier this week I texted our brand new neighbors, Candace and Layla, and said, may I borrow your skull for a sermon illustration? This was the second text to them ever. So I think the impression I made was accurate. And it wasn't that these Christians were morbid. In fact, they were living in a a moment where medical technology was flourishing, it was accelerating, and uh, mortality, infant mortality, human mortality rates were dropping. They're still crazy, scary, higher than ours, but they were dropping. And this was an effort of devoted Jesus followers who knew that they were most in touch, who, who knew that they were most in touch with the truth of their humanity and also, therefore, with the Godness of God, when they regularly reflected on their own mortality. I'll take that down because it's creepy. On their own mortality. Nothing like a skull, two feet from where you put your own head down on the pillow, to remind you that we all return to dust. They invited these reminders of death into the very rooms of their homes, if I can put it this way, where they participated with God in creating new life. And so also, they were bold in inviting the symbols of hope and of life into the places of death. Ever been to a, an old graveyard or a cemetery up in New England or in Europe? You've seen maybe those gravestones with skulls etched on them, skulls with wings. Remember that? Have you seen that? There's an old cemetery in the heart of New Haven, Connecticut right now that's got bunch of those on gravestones, and it's got a big wrought iron gate over the entrance, rusty but solid. And these are the words that hang over the entrance to that graveyard. The dead shall be raised. As Christians, the more in touch with truth that we want to be, the more we must simultaneously embrace our mortality, and also burnish the hope of our resurrection. We have to hold these two together. Here's my friend Brian's other arm for your entertainment. I realize this all might seem a little bit in your face, especially for somebody who's got this on both Forearms. It is. It is in your face. But I think it strikes us as all the more in our faces precisely because we do everything in our power to distract ourselves from these two truths. Precisely because we try to hold them at arm's length. Lydia Dugdale, in her profoundly helpful little book, The Art of Dying, recovers or tries to dig into this lost Christian literature called the Ars Moriendi, The Art of Dying. This is just the accumulation of Christian wisdom over the years about how to live well in order to die well with a view to living forever. And she's a theologian and a physician who works in palliative care. This is one of the things she says about our normal Western practices, which do our best to hold these truths at arm's length or to distract ourselves from them entirely. Here's what she writes. Today's... Modern hospital rituals, such as pulling the plug on Ricky, that's a story she had given earlier in the book, lack the depth and communal emphasis that belong to more ancient traditions. Removing life support and embalming corpses offer the veneer of ritual, but they're technical, procedural, and perfunctory. They're efficient, but efficiency does not allow the bereaved to see the truths worth seeing. Efficiency forces bodies onto conveyor belts, and conveyor belts move too quickly. Christians throughout the century, with the exception of our present moment, have looked death squarely in the eyes with unique courage and hope. You'll remember Dr. Ackman last week reminded us of Paul's words. Christians don't grieve as the pagans do. We grieve with hope. Not because we expect glory and our legacy to live on like the Greeks did, Not because we anticipate oblivion like the materialists did, but because Christians believe that we can still access the tree of life. Let's jump back into the Bible. Here's my third section The Way Back to the Tree of Life. The surprising thing about the rest of the Bible after Genesis three is that although God has barred the humans from getting back into Eden, getting back towards the tree, you remember those cherubim and the flaming sword, despite the fact he's barred them, he seems to continually hint that they can still have access to it. What do I mean? What am I talking about this is what he says there's 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 only one root it's like like getting out of a tourist gift shop. There's only one way, but there is a way. When God tells his people to build a tent for God's presence to dwell in, this is in Exodus 25, he tells them to build a tent for his presence to dwell in as he journeys with them through the wilderness, as he's leading them towards a promised land. And he gives them very specific instructions about what this tent is meant to be like and about the furniture that's meant to go inside. And he gives 10 whole verses to talking about a lampstand. Here's a couple of them from Exodus 25, verses 31 and 32. Make a lampstand of pure hammered gold. Make the entire lampstand. It's decorations of one piece, base, center arm, lamp, cups, buds, petals. Ancient lamps usually were a pot of oil with a single wick. If you wanted more light, you could do a bigger one, which they did. Why make six branches on your lampstand. Here's why. Because this lampstand is a tree. This lampstand is a tree with the light of life coming out of it. Right there in the middle of their camp is a reminder that the tree of life is still there, right there among them. But in order to access it, In order to get near the tree of life, you have to come into the tabernacle, which houses the presence of God. Here's another hint. Most of the other hints come to us from the book of Proverbs. Some of you know Proverbs is all about wisdom. Wisdom in the ancient world. Wisdom was, anybody can be smart, not everybody can be wise. Wisdom is skill for living in right relationship with God, ingrained with creation along the grain of creation. That's what Proverbs is about. And famously, right near the beginning, it says, if you want to be wise, the way to get wisdom is in relationship to God. And then, Proverbs 3.18, it says this, wisdom is a tree of life to those who embrace her. Happy are those who hold her tightly. So wisdom, wisdom somehow is key to accessing this tree of life, to accessing immortality. Where is wisdom found? in relationship with God. Both Exodus and Proverbs agree that this one route to this immortality lies through relationship with the creator. There's no rerouting here. There's no Google Maps alternate route option. Fast forward to the New Testament. Some of you remember John's gospel, the fourth gospel. He introduces his story by saying this, the word became flesh, the word is the son of God, became flesh and tabernacled, tabernacled among us. That's John 1.14. He made his home among us using that same tent language. And although John loves images and uses them all the time, for whatever reason, John doesn't ever use this image of the tree of life. I think, I think he feels like he's just got to be jolly explicit about this. He uses images for everything else, but on this point, what Proverbs and Exodus hint at, he just says it. He calls it eternal life, and this is what he says. Eternal life is available, but it's only available as a gift from God, and the only access to it is through faith in Jesus, the one who has tabernacled among us. Let me show you, I'm not making this up. Here's a couple of verses you might know from John's Gospel. For this is how God loved the world, John writes. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That's his word for immortality. And this is the way, this is in chapter 17. This is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. He's just he's just saying it as clearly as he can. Jesus is hung on a tree of death so that we can eat from the tree of life. Jesus comes to us outside the gates of Eden. He takes on himself the consequences of the human rebellion against God, and he offers us in him that eternal life that we are seeking. Get this. We don't become God-like by grabbing at glory and grabbing at immortality ourselves. In the Bible story, the Son of God sets aside his glory, sets aside his immortality, dies on a tree of death so that we may become like him. Heirs to immortality and to glory. Fast forward to the final book of the Bible. We're just following this thread of eternal life through some of the places it crops up. Final book of the Bible, Revelation, picks up that image again, the tree of life. A few times, here's my favorite one in the very last chapter. Chapter 22, verse 2. The scene is the one that Dr. Eklund painted for us last week, of of heaven has come to earth, earth has been remade, God dwells with his people. A new city and an old tree. Here's what Revelation 22, first few verses say. The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb down through the middle of the great street of the city on each side of the river. Try to imagine this, it's hard to picture stood the tree of life somehow on both sides, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. This is God's promise for all who trust in Jesus, for all who follow Jesus. If you die, you will be raised up. You will have a resurrection body that will shed Decay and disease and death like light rain off Gore-Tex Pro. You're going to live with God in a remade creation. It's going to be better even than it was in that beautiful first scene and you will eat the fruit of the tree of life. This is the way to immortality. If I were to paraphrase Peter Kreeft, I would say this is the way. The way is trust Jesus, obey Jesus, follow Jesus, study Jesus, worship Jesus, love Jesus. There's only one way. That's the way to the tree of life. Last section, how to embrace mortality with the hope of eternal life. So Christians, we live with this tension that we are mortal, but we've trusted God with our salvation. How do we live knowing that we almost certainly will die, but knowing that if we've trusted Christ, we hope that we will be raised again? And the answer the Christians have always given is that we do this together. How do we live well, to die well, to live eternally? We do it together. In fact, before before the Romans had a word for Christians, before they had a category for church, they thought Christians were a funeral society because Christians did such a good job of taking care of one another and preparing one another for death. Back when I was single and getting haircuts, I read about a 17th century English pastor, Richard Baxter, and he had a section on marriage, and he said, this is one of the the key goals of marriage. Right up there, near the top of his list, was prepare each other for death. Prepare each other for death. So, of course, this became one of my chat-up lines when I met Jill. (laughs) Hi, I'm bald, and can I prepare you for death? (laughs) I'm I'm making that up. I'm making that up. She's shaking her head at me. (laughs) As sisters and brothers, we um, we have this immense honor of preparing one another to die well helping one another to die well, confident of resurrection life. So what does that look like? Here we go back to that ancient body of literature, the Ars Moriandi, the art of dying. There are five core virtues, five core emphases that uh, the Ars Moriandi pull out, and each of them is a resistance to a chief temptation as we see death drawing near. Here they are. First one is cultivating patience to push back on impatience. One of the challenges of aging is that things just take longer. Often similar demands or increased demands are upon you, but there's less energy and you just sense that there's less time to get things done. So with aging comes this need to cultivate patience. However, in the Ars Moriendi, this patience is not because life moved too slowly, but because death did In pre-modern times, when there were fewer medical interventions, one of the deepest cruelties of terminal illness was how slowly it advanced toward us. And so there was a great need for patience. How do we help one another nurture patience? Key insight for me over the last few years is just how many of the key advances in the life of this church has come with prayer and then years, years of waiting. And still praying. Every one of my colleagues, Pastor Sam, Pastor Kim, Pastor Kenneth, after years of praying and waiting. The birth of this church, more than 30 years after older saints at a church a few miles north of here have been praying about starting another church. This building, at least a year of praying and waiting. One way to nurture patience is together to pray for big, far-off things and to keep praying. Pray for the adult lives of your infants. Pray for your character when you hit 80, 85. When I meet with couples, I say, what do you want your marriage to be like when you've been married 40 years? Pray for massive transformation in this city. Pray with others. Pray and wait. We cultivate patience. Hopefulness to push back on despair. We've talked in this room about the communal nature of hope. That's what I was referring to when I said I felt your voices under the shoulders of my soul this morning. It's difficult to summon hopefulness in the depths of despair. But it's possible to cultivate Hopefulness ahead of time, a hopefulness that is resistant to and resilient in the face of despair. So the author of Hebrews says this, encourage one another ever more as you see the day approaching, the day of the Lord approaching. Same applies as you see your own mortality approaching. Encourage one another all the more. And how does he say to do this? Same breath, don't give up meeting together. Gather together for worship. The more you're together for worship, the more you're together over Chipotle, the more you're together over... Uh, a playground, a play date, the more you're together over a study date, the more you're together watching a movie, the more you are together with other Christians, the more you build a thick plausibility structure in which your hopefulness can flourish in an age of despair. Humility. Humility to push back on self-absorption. Little ones, not my little ones, but little ones almost always are self-absorbed. And that makes sense, right? They're learning. They have a lot of needs. But did you know that we can be self-absorbed at 42? We can be self-absorbed in the back nine of life. Sometimes the temptation then is even greater. Loss, accumulated isolation, pain, these things are powerfully shaping forces on all of us. And when these occur, without the moderating effect, the deliberate effort to bring them to the healing hands of Christ, these things, the result can be we cocoon. We build up scar tissue. We build up a sort of protective self-absorption. We draw one another out of that self-absorption into humility by giving one another opportunities to serve, by serving with one another, by serving alongside each other, by putting ourselves proximal to others' needs. I love this week. I saw a photo of dozens of septuagenarians, many of them widowed or otherwise single, packing Christmas boxes together to bring joy to someone else. We help each other into humility by giving each other opportunities to serve together. Faith, faith to push back on unbelief. We're almost done here. It's always a celebration when somebody has a deathbed conversion. But that's not the goal. It's always wonderful when somebody leans the weight of their lives on Jesus in their final moments. But that's not what we're aiming for. We need to nurture it ahead of time. We need need each other to help us cultivate faith. There's this beautiful scene in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Christian, the main character, the protagonist, and his buddy, Hopeful, are about to enter the celestial city, the the cipher for heaven. There's a river to cross before they get there. It's a rushing river, Christian, is freaked out. And he's struggling with unbelief. He thinks this is gonna sweep over his head. And each step they take together deeper, the water rises higher on their bodies, higher and higher. And I don't know whether Hopeful was a couple inches taller or whether the current caught him a little less. But each time he cries out, It's no good. All is gonna be lost. I'm going under. Hopeful says to him, I can feel the bottom. The bottom holds. And arm in arm, they make it across the river, their eyes fixed on the celestial city. This is what we do. We hold one another as we cross the rivers, and we say, the bottom will hold. Last one, generosity to push back on closed-handedness. A wealthy Christian friend once told me that his goal is to die penniless, to give it all away before he dies. I love that. Too often when we're confronted with our own mortality, our hands shrink tight around our possessions, around all the things that give us our sense of security, even relationships, even our loved ones, end up in this category. And the Ars Moriendi, The the Art of Dying, urges us to nurture generosity, open-handedness, to push back on this gravity towards closed-handedness. This isn't Buddhist detachment. This isn't materialist detachment. The Christian ethic of love is actually one of increasing attachment. The more we become attached to Christ, the more we love and trust Christ, the more we love others, as we trust Christ, the more we are willing to release them to God's care. Father, this is scary, but I release, I release my family to you. There's no one I trust more in death and in life to care for them than you. You alone are Savior. You alone are God. You alone raise the dead to life everlasting. Father, would you come among us and do by your Spirit what I can't do with words.